welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we have another great show this week. I'm very excited uh, to talk about a, a number of key issues, particularly uh, relevant in the headlines today. But before we do that, I want to make my usual pitch for Counterpunch. Um, I think it's it's really important to support media projects that you really believe in, and I think that Counterpunch is one of those few uh, one of the few platforms that I look at and say, you know. It, I, I've been following it for so many years. I feel an obligation to continue to support it. I've been a supporter of Counterpunch myself for a number of years, and uh, the fact that I get to do this work with Counterpunch makes me all the more, uh, well, A, grateful, but B, uh, confident to say that uh, when you do support Counterpunch, you're supporting a very important project. You're supporting good work from a very small number of people. This is uh, really kind of a very small shop, Counterpunch is, and uh, it depends depends on the generosity of people who support it. So uh, consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great way to do that. You can uh, do it through the uh, website. You can pick up the phone and call the Counterpunch office. Whatever works for you, please do consider doing that, supporting the work that way or through a donation, uh, any way that you can. Also, uh, just a quick plug for my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. You can find a lot more content there, including additional podcasts and so forth. Anyway, uh, I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to welcome her back onto the program, uh, Dr. Hojina Aziz. She is uh, the creator of the Middle Eastern Feminist page on Facebook, follow that, but also the co-founder of the Heavy Foundation, previously a member of the Kobani Reconstruction Board. Uh, she has a PhD in political science and international relations from the University of Newcastle in Australia. She's speaking to us from Kobani, Syria. So much to discuss with her. Hojin, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much, Eric. It's lovely to be back. <laughs> so I want to, I'm, I'm very happy to have you on because of what's going on right now in, uh, you know, in the northern region of Syria, broadly speaking, in uh, Rojava. But uh, before we get into the details, remind us again for listeners who maybe didn't hear your previous appearance on this show, tell us just briefly what brought you to the region, how long you've been there, and uh, the work that you've been doing. Thank you so much, Eric. Um, I am a, actually a Kurd from northern Iraq, um, and I grew up in the 1980s um, in Iran and Iraq uh, during a period of intense conflict between obviously Iran and Iraq during the Iran and Iraq war. That was a bit of a mouthful. Um, and uh, as well as uh, at a time where the Ba'athist regime, the Saddam regime at the time, was implementing the infamous Alan Fall. Uh, campaign against the Kurds and the genocidal um, policies that it was implementing at the time, including the Halabza chemical weapons bombing, which incidentally, Eric, uh, today, which is the 16th of March, um, marks the 30th year anniversary of, of this particular genocide and the chem chemical bombings uh, dropped on Halabza town, which myself and my family um, were fortunate enough to be able to escape from. So coming from this background um, and then having to escape Iraq uh, and the violence uh, that was largely based on the Kurdish, uh, imposed on the Kurdish people based on their ethnicity and their demands for greater autonomy uh, and independence resulted in my family becoming refugees uh, in Iran uh, and it took us about eight years of living as second class citizens, living in abject poverty, um, attempting to get through to the UNHCR so that we could apply to come to Australia as uh, political refugees. 
So, um, you know, my family now has been living in Australia for about 23 years and uh, as wonderful as our second home has been and all of the privileges which it has provided me, including the ability to study further, which I understand that many, many females, many young girls in the Middle East are not afforded to. Um, it really allowed me a, a platform and an additional uh, you know, space and privilege to be able to speak about the Kurdish issue, not just the Kurdish issue, but really the plight of many ethnic and religious minorities um, internationally. Um, when in 2014 ISIS, uh, which had arisen as a result of the 2003 invasion of Iraq by the United States, started to attack Iraq and started to attack Syria, um, most of the attacks were actually directed towards the northern part of these countries, which included the large majority of the Kurds in these areas. Specifically, when Kobani um, was under siege in 2000, late 2014, and we saw the rise of the infamous Yepaga and Yepaja fighters, the Kurdish and uh, Kurdish men and women's protection units. Um, during that particular siege, which lasted a couple of months, um, it had a huge and profound impact on me. Um, to see that uh, these young women, particularly the Yepaja women, fight so bravely and heroically against the ISIS um, fighters and their ideology of, of you know, patriarchal oppressive values based on religious fundamentalism. And to juxtapose the bravery of this incredible young woman against what had happened earlier in 2014 in Shengal in northern Iraq with the massacre and the genocide and the kidnapping of thousands of young Yazidi women who were religious minorities in northern Iraq. Um, it had a truly profound impact on me. Um, I had also just finished my PhD, so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to dedicate my life to, to speaking about this issue. And as, as a result of some of my activism, living all the way down under in Sydney, Australia, um, I was provided with opportunities to eventually participate in the rebuilding of Kobani in early 2015. And when I arrived in, in Rojava and I was uh, you know, exposed intimately and firsthand to the revolution, this, you know, this ecologically based um, feminist, uh, multicultural, radical democracy, um, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> so I think since 2015, although I've had opportunities to leave and come back, um, I've been living in Rojava for about three years and I've been intimately involved in witnessing the re revolution, but also witnessing the huge amounts of violence uh, that are being imposed on the people in Syria, whether it's from Turkey at the moment or nothing, whether it's through seeing what's happening with the rest of Syria, is Ghouta, what happened with Raqqa, what happened in Aleppo, um, the constant air bombardment and so on, um, which has also provided me with a privileged um, position to be able to speak about what's happening from a first-hand position. Indeed. Uh, I want to return to Rojava and some of the issues that you highlighted, including, you know, the issue of uh, the role of women and, and, and how that's centered in the revolution and so forth. But I want to shift, at least for now, to just focusing on what's going on currently. Uh, obviously, uh, in in the context of uh, the, the northern part of Syria and the Kurdish struggle, the major event ongoing, dominating the headlines or at maybe should be dominating more headlines or yeah or lack <laughs> of domination of headlines but uh yes. be that as it may uh the situation in afrin and uh the turkish offensive uh across the border penetrating deep into kurdish territory this is a major story and uh as we just mentioned it's really not getting as much coverage as it probably should but before we talk about the coverage 
help us to understand, Hojin, if you could, what's going on in Afrin? What what happened? When did this begin? What is this uh, offensive allegedly about from the Turkish perspective? And what is it really about? Thank you so much, Eric. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this is the, today's the 16th of March, 2018. I mean, marks the 30th year anniversary of the Halabza chemical weapons attack on the Kurdish people in northern Iraq. But yesterday, the 15th of, of March, was the anniversary and the start of the seventh year war in Syria. I think what's happening in Afrin at the moment is interlinked with everything that has been happening regionally within Syria um, in relation to what's been happening with imperialist powers, in relation to the involvement of the United States, Russia, Iran, um, Saudi Arabia. But I think it goes back far further uh, and I think has a very, very deep roots in the 2003 invasion of Iraq um, by the United States. Just very briefly to summarize what's happening in Afrin, um, on uh, January basically 2018 this year, uh, the Turkish government launched a military attack on the Kurdish enclave of uh, Afrin, which is one of the cantons in northern Syria, Kurdish cantons in northern Syria. And for about a period of 54 days, there has been constant, literal, daily airstrikes and bombardments um, on the city of Afrin. And I have to emphasize on the city of Afrin part, the Turkish government has been deliberately targeting civilians and civilian areas in an attempt to cause as much civilian damage and as much terror as possible and, and force the people of Afrin to actually flee, which is related to one of the main policies of the Turkish government, which I'll go into much, much de uh, more detail. But uh, this invasion um, attempt by the Turkish government is rooted in the ongoing conflict between the Kurdish and the Turkish um, government for, for several decades now, for four or five decades now, four decades. Um, and it really goes back to the demands of the Kurdish people who were divided as a result of imperialist and colonial powers in the 20, early 20th century and were basically divided between the countries of Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. And so as a result, we have the biggest uh, nation, the biggest, largest people without a, uh, without a state, divided between four countries. Now, as a result of the very imperial construct that these states consist of, um, uh, this has resulted in very, very authoritarian powers, um, sorry, policies, by some of these regimes towards the Kurdish people and other ethnic and religious minorities that have been um, confined within the borders of these countries. So generally authoritarian policies, um, including ethnic cleansing, genocides, um, and all forms of state um, terrorism through military and police forces have been implemented towards the, you know, the minorities. And the Kurdish people are, are no exception in this case. Um, this has been particularly exacerbated in Turkey, where the regime, the Turkish government, has been extremely authoritarian and increasingly anti-democratic uh, and using terrorist tactics uh, to, to target, deliberately target, and violate the basic human rights of many ethnic and uh, religious minorities in the region, uh, in the country. Um, the Kurdish people have launched a resistance, um, military resistance uh, uh, attempt against the, Kurdish, the Turkish government but it has resulted in ongoing direct conflict in a lot of um, many, many more massacres. As we saw, for example, in 2015 and 2016, the Turkish government deliberately used its um, NATO power and military and tanks um, and, and air power to directly attack you know, Zazira, the cities of, of eastern, the Kurdish cities of eastern um, Turkey. Uh, so Zazira and Sabin, Ahmed, Lichester, Inak were bombarded for weeks on end and, and hundreds and, and people were 
brutally massacred and thousands more were, were, um, were injured. So when in uh, 2011 the uh, uprising of the Syrian people against the Assad regime occurred, uh, the Kurdish people in the north who had been subjected to particularly different types of oppressive policies by the Assad regime also rose up. Um, in 2012, they started to implement a radical, democratic, gender-liberating and ecological um, system uh, in the northern parts. Um, and really, this system generated a lot of attention when in 2014, ISIS terrorists attacked uh, the canton of Kobani. Uh, this system, this democratic model, was uh, implemented as a result of the work of Abdullah Ocalan, who is the leader of the, the, the Kurdish liberation movement, particularly in Turkey, but who has now been in jail as a result of the imperialist powers, uh, policies of the Turkish government and its relationship and coordination with other imperialist uh, powers. Um, and so Abdullah Ocalan has been in jail for about 19 years. Uh, as a result of his time in, in, in jail, he produced uh, his prison writings, which proposed an alternative to addressing the Kurdish question um, and produced the different Kurdish solutions, um, which allowed the Kurdish people in resolving uh, the Kurdish question in the Middle East to actually become a solution for some of the ongoing problems that the Middle East has been experiencing. And this solution was a radical multicultural form of democracy, a confederal form of democracy, where the liberation of women, um, women's liberation and, and freedom sits at, at the foundation of this system, uh, where this ideology, according to Abdullah cannot be implemented and no form of democratic system can be implemented and introduced without the explicit and active liberation of women in the Middle East, particularly within the Kurdish areas. And of course, ecological protection is very, very essential because as a result of industrialization and as a result of ongoing capitalism and imperial and colonial practices within the region, um, the environment has significantly suffered. So when this model uh, started to be implemented in the Kurdish north, which we call Rojava in Kurdish, um, this really challenged the ongoing authoritarianism of the Turkish regime. Particularly, this was exacerbated as of uh, 2016 when the military coup supposedly occurred in Turkey um, and, and really started to solidify and become a reason to solidify um, and, and further entrench uh, Erdogan, the current president of Turkey's um, extra you know, powers uh, in, in Turkey. So this democratic model, this feminist-based democratic ecological model is in direct contrast to the kind of model that uh, Erdogan is attempting to implement, not only in Turkey, but, it, but his desires for the entire region. Uh, Erdogan has made it very, very clear that he intends on implementing a um, new Ottoman system on, on the region uh, and attacking Afrin um, and implementing direct ethnic cleansing um, and implementing demographic changes, ethnic democratic demographic changes on Afrin is the start of implementing this new Ottoman um, Islamic and, and fascist policy, um, according to Erdogan. So just moving on to Afrin. Afrin was actually uh, one of the safest regions in all of Syria for the entire period of the last seven years. Uh, thousands of refugees from Raqqa, from Aleppo, from, from other areas of uh, central and northern Syria fled to, to, to Afrin to seek refuge. Um, and so as a result, Afrin now has one of the largest refugee internally displaced camps uh, in northern Syria, which this camp, by the way, has also been directly targeted uh, by the airstrikes uh, by Turkey. Um, and fortunately, at the moment, as a result of the last 64 days, 
huge humanitarian crisis is uh, being enacted in Afrin. Uh, about 16,000 people have been internally dis displaced within Afrin. Um, the, the Turkish government, um, not only as a result of the airstrikes, but the active use, active recruitment um, and training of the previous uh, jihadist groups, some of which include uh, you know, former ISIS uh, members, uh, various terrorist groups and jihadists like uh, Nuruddin Zengi Brigade, which were uh, famous for the beheading of a 14-year-old child back in 2016, uh, you know, groups like Jabhat al-Shamiya, uh, Sultan Murad Brigade, Harad uh, al-Sham. So Turkey has actively recruited these terrorists into its military and has provided them with NATO's um, military prowess and capacity and equipment and has been actively recruiting them to attack the Kurdish people in, in Afrin. Now, what is very different about what's happening in Afrin is that um, there was a video released by the Turkish army um, which is very, very pivotal in order for us to understand what's happening and what's so different about the current invasion of Afrin. This video um, involved clearly what is former jihadists dressed in the Turkish military um, uh, uniform, stating, um, making threats in relation to ethnic cleansing, making threats in relation to beheading of Kurds if they prove not to be enough of Muslims, uh, calling them pigs, calling them apostates, and calling them infidels. Uh, and making clear statements that if they do not prove and, and um, indicate their willingness to accept the kind of Islam uh, that these, these um, military groups are advocating for, that the outcome would be um, literal beheading of the people in, in Afrin. Um, another really important point is to point out that um, Afrin uh, has been deliberately targeted by the airstrikes, but these airstrikes have just as um, ISIS and just as you know, uh, Taliban in, in Afghanistan, for example, uh, and ISIS in Iraq um, attempted, uh, the airstrikes have been deliberately targeting essential infrastructure. So this is very, very important to note. It has been attacking hospitals, causing a humanitarian crisis. And one of the major uh, uh, airstrikes has resulted in damage to the only water source in Afrin. So as of last week, uh, the Maidanki Dam uh, in northern Syria was targeted and has been taken over by the Turkish forces, uh, resulting in all water supply being cut off to the citizens of Afrin. Um, not only that, but they have been attempting to redirect the water supply from this dam to, from Afrin to the Azaz areas and, and redistribute the water there. Um, so some of the things that we are seeing are extremely, extremely worrying. There are daily airstrikes over the last about um, 30 hours or so. 13 civilians have been killed um, and a large number of people, about, 20, uh, about 30 people, sorry, have been injured, many of whom are often children, of course. Um, so there's a huge, huge crisis happening at the moment. And uh, as we briefly mentioned, there's complete international violence over what's happening at the moment. And instead, all attention is focused on East Ghouta and what's happening in the west of Syria at the moment, which is very, very problematic, particularly for the international left who has fallen into this, this very trap. Indeed. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about Ghouta uh, a little bit later in our conversation, but I want to focus on some of the points that you just made, because I think it's very important uh, to remember that... that um, 
the networks that the Turks have been funding and funneling money through and funneling weapons through going back to 2012, those are the same networks that have been, for lack of a better word, operationalized by Erdogan and his intelligence agencies and, you know, and the various, uh, you know, the various uh, forms of military power that he has in order to be able to use it to Turkey's advantage against the Kurds. And so when you talk about, you know, former ISIS and former, you know, RRL Sham and, 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 and former fighters of these other organizations now working with the Turks or rather taking Turkish money in order to do the bidding of the Turks. I mean, what we're really seeing is the transformation of a financial flow and of weapons flows into a full-blown for lack of a better word, alliance between the Turkish state and these uh, jihadist groups. A, would you agree with uh, the way in which this conflict has transformed as vis-a-vis -vis Turkey? And then B, uh, the fact that this is a NATO member doing this, I think, escalates the issue and makes it one of, um, I, I, I think, critical importance for the purposes of resistance. Um, you are absolutely spot on, Eric. Uh Turkey, the Erdogan regime has been actively recruiting, providing weaponry, providing medical support and aid, and pathways from northern uh, Syria back into Turkey to receive support, and then back into northern Syria to uh, initiate to ISIS, and now to these various different groups that we've mentioned. The relationship between the Turkish government and some of these terrorist groups has been very, very open, has been very, very uh, transparent. There have been numerous documents, articles, reports that have been published by international organizations and governments condemning Turkey for this relationship. But nevertheless, Turkey has continued to support these organizations against and to the detrimental of human rights um, in Syria, of not only the Kurds, but some of the other minorities that happen to reside in North Syria and share the land with the Kurdish people. Um, the ongoing silence of NATO uh, in relation to one of its members engaging so publicly and so actively and so defiantly against international human rights laws uh, and conventions and, and laws in relation and norms in relation to war is deeply problematic. But nevertheless, quite, um, um, I, I don't know what the word is, you know, it's, it's normalized for us Kurdish people. I think since the beginning of the rise of Kurdish nationalism and Kurdish demands for human rights and for greater autonomy, um, we've always been subjected to the silence of the international community. So for us, this is nothing new. Uh, it's part of the psychology of pain and suffering that we have internalized as Kurdish people because we accept that the international community, we accept that the EU and NATO um, and you know some of these bigger institutions and organizations that claim to support human rights are going to be actively silent and actively supporting networks against us. So for us to continue to watch uh, since 2012, the ongoing uh, obvious and apparent relationship between Turkey and some of these terrorist organizations is deeply painful. Um, and we have no expectation at any point that NATO or any of these other international organizations is going to condemn Turkey or make any sort of an active effort to prevent Turkey from continuing to engage with these terrorist groups. I don't want to speak about the international side of it. I think everybody to some extent is aware of, of the hypocrisy of these international organizations and lack of active support for human rights, whether in Syria or really anywhere else in the Middle East, as well as globally. What I want to focus on is what is the relationship between the jihadists and Turkey's active financing of some of these terrorist groups and organizations has had on, on Syria, particularly on, on Afghan and on, on northern parts uh, of Syria in the Rojava region. 
one of the major concerns that we have as the Kurdish people at the moment is, as I mentioned earlier, these attempts at ethnic cleansing, these attempts at uh, statements that allude to some sort of a genocide, which these um, uh, foot soldiers, these jihadists are, are implementing against the Kurdish people in Afrin. One of these is ongoing concerns and, and something that goes back to the Turkey-Kurdish relationship. Um, in this ethnic cleansing as a result of democratic, the demographic changes in the region. What we've seen in the last three days is an alarming attempt by the Turkish government to bring in the families of some of these jihadists, uh, particularly those that are currently in the Idlib, Idlib um, camp, um, and bring their families and relocate them and provide them with the villages that have been evacuated by, by people in Afrin in the surrounding provinces. Um, what we are seeing is a lot of these people who have escaped, some of them are very, very, very much in danger, particularly the Yazidi communities, as well as the Christian communities who have been subjected to executions, who have been subjected to um, all forms of torture, torture and violence by the Turkish and their jihadist alliances, uh, allies in Afrin. Um, so their villages are actually being taken over by some of these jihadists. But as you mentioned uh, also, um, Eric, the Turkish government has been providing significant amounts of financial support to people in some of these camps. Not just, for example, in the Asma camp in Idlib, um, but really people who have been victimized as a result of the ongoing war in Syria. Uh, for example, the Turkish government provides the families of a, of a, of a militant who has been murdered with, um, with passage into Turkey, as well as citizenship, providing them with financial rewards, providing them with all kinds of support as an incentive for people who are in terrible situations uh, and providing them with incentive to engage in direct attacks against other fellow oppressed uh, minorities and communities and, and civilians in, in Syria. So not only does the, the relationship between Turkey and the jihadists need to be condemned in the strongest terms, but the way in which Turkey is utilizing the ongoing violence and the ongoing war and the vast human rights violations in Syria to its own advantage to implement this ethnic cleansing against particular minorities such as the Yazidis or the Christians uh, or the Kurds um, also needs to be condemned very, very, very strongly. But of course, as we mentioned, this is something that is um, happening and occurring before the eyes of the international communities, and we are yet to see any sort of condemnation from the international community in this regard. Indeed, and one of the things that I think is um, is is important to remember too is that uh, the Turks were providing support for a lot of these jihadist elements well before and well beyond just the Kurdish uh, region in Syria. I mean, we remember back to 2013 and 2014, where there were yeah. eyewitness reports from Idlib and from other parts of Syria, where the Turkish military had been providing air cover, what amounted to air cover for some of those jihadist forces that had moved in. So this has been a tactic that the Turkish government has been using for quite a while. But what we see now is that there seems to be a, a, a higher degree of direct coordination, a higher degree of, of uh, direct implementation of, I, I guess, what you could call a, a sort of a jihadist vanguard for the Turkish uh, invasion of northern Syria. I mean, it does seem to me that these jihadis are most likely seen by the Turks as 
cannon fodder, you know, to be thrown on the front line uh, for the Turkish military to come in and mop up uh, whatever whatever remains. So, A, I'd like to ask uh, a little bit about the sort of the delineation between the jihadist elements of uh, what the, uh, the Turkish invasion and Turkish regular military and Turkish intelligence and what they've been doing. I guess that's the first part. And then the second part, of course, is if you could speak more broadly to Turkey's role in the conflict in Syria, you know, going back well before this most recent incursion. Um, Eric, again, you are uh, spot on. Uh, Turkey and the Turkish regime have been actively supporting many of these jihadists uh, in their attempt against uh, or in their resistance uh, or in direct conflict with the Assad regime. Um, but it, ha- it has also been supporting them in their violence towards the many different groups uh, and minorities um, and sectors within the Syrian uh, society as well. Um, just highlighting that jihadist relationship, I think there's a very active ideological linkage between some of these jihadist groups and the Turkish government. So it's not just a military strategic relationship for Turkey to provide support and funding or air cover or military equipment or medical equipment to these terrorists and some of these organizations. There's actually an increased linkage between what the Turkish government has been increasingly advocating, which is this ultra-nationalist, very fascist, increasingly um, very very religious-based, very um, extremist-based ideology about the identity and nature of, of Turkey itself and its political system. So I think we need to really link the increasingly worrying trend and, and tendency towards extremist um, Islamic ideology on the Turkish side of the Turkish government and linking this uh, with the jihadists who are on the ground at the moment enacting vast, vast um, human rights violations towards particular, particularly non-Muslim minorities in, in Syria. Um, so this ideological relationship is very much playing out in Africa, as I mentioned, um, and the advocation that if anyone does not adhere to this particular type of Islam, then they're subject to basically, you know, to be murdered. Are these jihadists to some degree being used by the Turkish government? Are they being victimized and, and, and being used by the Turkish government? I think there's significant amounts of regional support for some of these organizations, uh, organizations on the ground in Syria, whether it's from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from, uh, you know, some of these United Arab, Arab um, uh, countries, from uh, Kuwait, for example. Uh, there's significant support whether in the sense of military or undercover support for some of these organizations, which Turkey at the moment is actively and openly doing. Um, are they are these uh, organizations, jihadist organizations, being used to implement regional proxy wars? Definitely, most definitely. There are a lot of interest originally, whether it's from Saudi Arabia, whether it's in relation to, uh, to Iran, uh, and its interest in what's happening in Syria. Uh, they are being used as cannon fodder. Um, but they are being used also in the process to implement huge violations against already tortured and, and abused civilians um, across Syria. Um, so unfortunately for them, my sympathy for them is not, is not to a very large degree. And I believe that them being used as cannon fodder um, is basically eliminating a certain element of very, very violent um, imperialist um, and, uh, you know, imp- uh, um, factors within the Syrian conflict at the moment. I think for most of us, the main concern is about what's happening with the civilians, uh, what's happening in relation to women's rights and the vast amount of violation towards women's rights in relation to sexual violence, for example, particularly in central and southern parts of Syria, uh, as a result of the conflict between some of these jihadists and rebel groups, so-called rebel groups and the Assad regime. 
um, and the Assad regime using sexual violence, for example, as a form of abuse and as a form of uh, retaliation against the civilians who just happen to be in the areas that some of these rebels and terrorists um, uh, occupy. Um, and of course, of course, uh, there needs to be a specific uh, focus and attention on the fact that irrespective of what is happening in the different factions, the greatest group that has suffered significantly within Syria are the children of Syria. Whether they're Kurdish children in Syria, whether they're Zidi or Christian or Armenian or Chechen or other minorities and different groups, that there are, you know, the amount of suffering that the children of Syria have had to suffer and endure as a result of the last seven years of violence is horrendous and beyond mention. And if there is no concern from the international community for some of these groups that Kurdish rights and, and the and some of these uh, rebel groups attempting to remove Assad from regime and so on, that's fine. Uh, you know, we are used to these kind of wars and conflicts in the Middle East, particularly in Syria and in Iraq. But there needs to be focus on what's happening to the children of Syria. And the ongoing silence of the international community in this regard is particularly and extremely abhorrent. Well, I totally agree with that, and I wasn't suggesting that the jihadist forces oh, no. deserve <laughs> our <laughs> deserve our sympathy. I was I was trying to yeah. place into the context of the strategic uh, focus that the Turks have yeah. and how how they're utilizing yeah. these forces. So, uh, but yes, I, yeah. I, I I certainly agree. Now, I want to focus a little bit before we before we head to a break on this question of demographics and some of the um, issues that have arisen because one of the claims that I I have heard repeatedly from uh, a number of quarters that I, I guess could be described as pro-Assad in their orientation, uh, have said that the, the the Kurds themselves have been guilty of various forms of demographic shift, forcible demographic shift, areas that weren't typically or traditionally Kurdish becoming Kurdish once the, uh, the Yipiga forces had moved in and so forth. So I want to talk a little bit about this issue of demographic shift, what's going on on with how the Turks are doing it in terms of uh, the, the the use of the various uh, jihadist forces and their families and so forth. And then this broader question of accusation against Kurds of enforcing demographic shift. Is that really so or is there more uh, complex background to that story? Can you explain a little bit about how that uh, has evolved and what's actually happened? Uh, definitely. This is a really, really good point to focus on actually. I think the, the main distinction between what Turkey is att attempting to implement by these jihadist groups in Afrin is very, very different to some of the accusations that have been made against the Yafaga forces. Uh, to start off with, the ethnic cleansing and the democratic changes that Turkey is attempting to implement is for the purpose of uh, returning to a, a, a new Ottoman Empire and to regain land supposedly for Turkey. So one of Turkey's uh, main objectives is to uh, regain Afrin and to move on to uh, Menbij, and then from Menbij uh, move on to Kobani, to Jazeera Canton, and then enter into northern Iraq and recapture supposedly Mosul, um, as well as Kirkuk, of course, uh, which it considers to be part of its Ottoman Empire, um, you know, land and, and demography. So this is part of the reason why some of these jihadists are coming in and why some of the Turkmen, um, member, uh, you know, communities uh, in in the in Afrin are also being um, used to, to engage in this demographic change. But this demographic change is also related to jihadist values and jihadist expectations, but also to Turkey's attempts to gain and to annex parts of Syria and northern Iraq, which it has been very, very vocal about. There's been so many you know, articles and reports written about this, and you can easily find information in this regard. 
Now, to understand some of the accusations uh, which you know have been largely debunked uh, uh, against the Yefaga is that uh, there was a very famous, again, um, report by Amnesty International that was presented back in 2015, which uh, claimed that the Yefaga were engaging in ethnic cleansing and removing many Arab villages in the area um, and forcing them out of their traditional lands. Uh, now, this report was actually debunked uh, and falsified by the UNHCR, uh, the, the, um, the uh, United Nations, um, who are present in Syria. Uh, and this claim was actually, uh, it was stated that these, uh, some of these villages were being removed for their own safety, for example, because of ISIS, the presence of ISIS and ongoing conflict and war. Um, but I think, you know, if we look at the policies of the Assad regime towards the Kurdish people in the north, since the 1960s and 70s and even early 80s, there was huge amount of you know, demographic change as a direct policy of the regime towards the Kurdish people. Uh, thousands of villages were uh, you know, removed. Some of their names were changed from Kurdish names into Arab names. Areas such as, for example, Hasaka and uh, Manbij, which had been traditionally very largely Kurdish-dominated areas, if not Kurdish land, uh, were taken over. Large numbers of Arab communities and families were relocated to the northern part. Uh, Kurdish people were literally overnight forced out of their homes with only the belongings on their backs, basically the clothes on their backs, kicked out, and entire families moved in into these areas. So I think you know some of these accusations are as a result of anti-Kurdish sentiment, um, as a result of extreme uh, lack of information and misinformation that are coming out about the Yefaga. There have been no international reports from international organizations, human rights organizations, that have supported claims that the Yefaga is engaging in this kind of um, uh, demographic change. Um, if there, these kind of demographic changes are occurring, uh, you know, the Yefaga or any other forces in the region need to be strongly, strongly condemned. Instead, what we have seen, not only just in relation to the Yefaga, but that the um, the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria is attempts by people to engage in a multicultural form of confederal democratic system. Um, and different ethnic and religious groups have been uh, included and provided with ample participation and, and goals within this new democratic system. And I think some of these anti-Yefagas voices need to also look at the fact that despite the attacks by ISIS, despite the attacks by, uh, by Turkey on Afghanistan at the moment, despite direct clashes between various forces such as the Yefago, the Assad regime and so on, um, you know, the northern part has remained relatively stable and peaceful and significant attempts have been made to implement and to create ground-based you know, um, grassroots uh, movements, civil society groups movements, and institutions that would you know, bring about multiculturalism and democratic and peaceful coexistence with one another. Now, of course, um, you know, there's also very free media in the northern parts. There are media groups who are coming and moving in out of uh, the northern parts all the time and flowing back into Europe and America and Canada and, and these Western countries. And if there were genuine concerns about this Yefaga, there would be a much, much, much greater outcry. Um, because as we know that some of these pro-Assad forces have made no, um, have made it very clear that they're very much against Kurdish, um, Kurdish human rights and, and Kurdish attempts to gain some democratic, um, uh, so to speak, you know, uh, space within the northern northern part. Um, so I just want to reiterate that no international organization has um, condemned the Yefaga for these for the gerrymandering and democratic demographic changes.
Indeed, and I think it's important to note too that uh, one of the one of the most uh, often repeated and I think uh, really quite uh, reprehensible claims uh, regarding the Kurds is that the Kurds are merely the puppets of the United States. They're the puppets of the Israelis. They're the puppets of NATO. They're just uh, you know these dependent uh, people who you know without the without the backing of the United States they'd be nowhere. Where in fact I think the relationship is 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 much more complex, isn't it? So can you speak a little bit to the to this uh, claim that is often made actually from from different sides of this conflict that the uh, that the Kurds are essentially kind of a Trojan horse used by the United States in order to either a on the one hand break apart Syria if you have a more pro-Assad orientation or if you're on the other side that they're basically used as a as a weapon against the Turks. Um. I think the majority of these voices have come from actually the international left, uh, and they have been very, very brutal in condemning the relationship, the supposed relationship between the Kurdish people and the United States as this imperial power that is responsible for a significant, um, you know, amounts of violence in the region. And so, condemning the Kurds for their alliance um, it has been a very, very, very uh, open, very vocal element of criticism towards the Kurdish people. I think I would like to start by challenging the international left and some of these voices that have been demanding that the Kurdish people not cooperate um, in the way that they have with the American uh, government by stating that the oppressed do not owe any form of explanation in relation to their survival strategies when they're you know, facing several uh, terrorist groups, dictatorial regimes who are hell-bent on their, not only on, on their very eradication, but on ethnic cleansing and genocide towards the Kurdish people. The Kurdish people in northern Syria have been subjected to horrendous human rights violations, as have some of the other ethnic and religious minorities in the northern parts. So the fact that the Kurdish people used a strategic moment to make a short-term strategic alliance with the American government to acquire weapons in order for them to eradicate ISIS, which, by the way, is in the entire world's <laughs> interest not to be, you know, to be subjected to this kind of terrorism. And the fact that, you know, the ISIS terrorism, some of these jihadist groups were at the, at the um, basically uh, front door of the Kurdish people and the Kurdish areas, forced them into a position where they had to defend themselves. Of course, they lacked the weaponry, they lacked the means in order for them to, to, to fight against ISIS. And so one way in which they made a strategic alliance, temporary and short-term strategic alliance with the American government, was to trade these uh, relationships in, uh, and, and acquire some weapons to be able to engage in the fight against ISIS. I think we need to really point out to the international community that the Yepaga forces and, and you know Yepaga and then later on the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is the main force at the moment in northern uh, Syria, use these weapons to actively eliminate ISIS. At no point did the Kurdish North, at no point did the Syrian Democratic Forces, at no point did, uh, did the Democratic Federation of North Syria use these weapons to violate, to massacre, to kill civilians in these areas. It only used these weapons to target ISIS and to actually liberate large numbers of, of communities and people. At the same time, while supporting a very, very large number of internally displaced people in Jazeera Canton, in Kobani, in Africa well. So I think, you know, there's a lot of criticism from the Kurdish community as well towards the international community in relation to their lack of information and their misuse of information deliberately to condemn the Kurdish people and for attempting to survive in the moment while ISIS terrorists were knocking on their door and attempting to engage in, you know, all kinds of human rights violations, which we saw play out in Mandish, 
with women being, you know, subjected to lashes, people's hands being cut off, people being publicly beheaded, um, members of the LGBTQIA community being thrown off buildings, um, you know, mass violence and, and, and sexual violence against women, the, the selling and the bartering of Yazidi women and other women in the markets of, of uh, Aleppo, in the markets of Raqqa and, and Manbij and so on. So I think in this regard, there needs to be significant condemnation. But, you know, what relationship with the United States? For the last 53 years, the Kurdish people have been defending themselves and civilians in Afrin with no form of support from the international community. The United States, the supposed, you know, there's this supposed alliance between them has been not only silenced, but has actively done nothing to condemn Turkey and its violation of the sovereignty of, of Syrian land uh, and its you know, invasion and uh, attempt uh, in Afrin. So I think, you know, the fact that the last 53 days and the intense, you know, resistance and the heroic resistance of the people of Afrin and the Yafag and the Yafajan, the Syrian democratic forces against Turkey, really debunks this, this um, argument in relation to, to this, you know, to the Kurdish forces having some sort of relationship with the imperial palace. I think, again, going to um, the survival uh, strategies of oppressed communities and minorities in the region, you know, the Kurdish people have attempted to um, you know, coordinate with the United States, with Russia, with the Assad regime, in order for them to strategically be able to not only survive but protect particular communities and to push back ISIS as well. So some of these strategies have been survival mechanisms and some of them have been in order to protect particular communities. But again, it's not because they have a closer relationship within the United States and therefore are imperialists or colonizers or, or so on, but because in the time when, you know, there was significant threat against the communities, um, an alliance, temporary strategic alliance was made. But I also want to point out to something very, very important. The ideology of democratic confederalism in North Syria, the values of the people and the kind of democratic federation that is being implemented in this region is very much anti-colonialist. It's very much anti-capitalist and it's very much anti-imperialist. Ideologically, there's no coordination and cooperation. There's no linkages. There's no relationship between imperialist powers like you know, Russia or the United States. They are ideologically opposed to one another. There can be no long-term alliances or relationship between these two opposing forces, which the Kurdish leadership has consistently repeated. Has the Kurdish people, you know, the Kurdish North, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, used American uh, concerns uh, to gain uh, weapons in order for them to, to defend themselves? Yes, they have. And if they did not have these weapons for the last 54 days, Afrin would have been massacred. Hundreds and thousands of people would have been massacred. Thousands more would have been displaced, and the conflict and the humanitarian crisis in Syria would have been made much, much worse. So I think the international community and some of these voices need to really read wider into some of the context, read wider in relation to what the oppressed are forced to do in order for them to simply survive, and read about why there is so much resentment towards the Kurdish people. I think, you know, in relation to at least northern Syria, the Kurdish movement there, has been very much against, um, you know, what the Israeli government has been doing in relation to its oppression and violence towards the Palestinian people. In fact, if there are two ethnic groups who are indirect, you know, in some sort of a sisterhood or slash brotherhood or in fraternity in relation to the kind of oppression that they experience, it's the Kurdish people and it's the Palestinian people. Now, of course, there's some criticism about the Kurdish people and the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq. Um, because um, I think in September, when the Kurdish uh, referendum was being held, um, the Israeli government was one of the only governments that publicly claimed support for a Kurdish independent state. But this relationship and this supposed support for the Kurdistan regional government to become independent from the rest of Iraq is as a result of direct neoliberal 
colonial and uh, capitalist practices, which the Kurdistan regional government is very much, um, I think, guilty of. Um, in contrast, the ideology and the values of the Kurdish people here in the north, uh, northern Syria, is very, very different and heavily anti-imperialist. Um, and I think there needs to be a lot more information, um, you know, released in this regard. Um, but I think really the last 54 days of resistance in Africa against the Turkish government and the lack of any form of support uh, from the United States really debunks this supposed relationship in, between the Kurdish people um, and the United States. I think that's well said. Uh, I would agree uh, with with a number of those points, and uh, we'll have to return to that on the other side of the break. Much more to discuss, including what's uh, what's going on in other parts of Syria, uh, talking a little bit more about Turkish motivations and, and how the Turks have been executing this strategy of theirs, and a whole lot more to discuss with Hoji Aziz. Stick with us on the other side of the break. We'll continue the conversation. Counterpunch Radio will be right back. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means It's equal rights for every man regardless of his strength So don't let no one fool you Joshua Listen as I tell you Joshua No man are better than none Socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is people pulling together. Would you believe me? Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes saying he's got a lot to lose. Don't want to hear about sufferer at all. One man have too many, while too many have too little. Socialism don't stand for that, don't stand for that at all. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is Socialism is sharing with your 
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Hojin Aziz, who's speaking to us from Kobani, Syria. Uh, the I'm I'm pretty happy so far with the uh, with the internet connection. This has been pretty pretty good. So I'm I'm very happy about that, Hojin. But also, I want to return to some of the points that you made there before the break because I think that uh, the point you made about the orientation of the Kurds to uh, all of the different powers involved in this conflict, I think, is a very very important one uh you know uh those forces um you know uh in the media and on social media and so forth who have made accusations against the kurds seemingly didn't make those accusations when when kurdish representatives were running to moscow to try to make a deal with the russians which ultimately collapsed they didn't really have so much of a problem with it when the kurds were meeting with the assad government in damascus in an opportunistic way it was really only when the kurds were doing precisely the same thing vis-a-vis the Americans that this issue was brought up. And so I think what, what again, I'm trying to highlight is sort of the reasons why and, and, and the manifestations of the political bias of people who project onto the Kurdish issue and onto the Kurdish people their own political uh, you know orientations. And I think that's one of the problems is that the Kurds are trying to do... Uh, Essentially, what amounts to the independent, uh, an, an independence movement. I don't know. That was a bad way of saying it, but an independence movement. <laughs> they're trying to build. They're trying to build something new. And I think those forces on either side of this conflict that are trying to defend the status quo. That's what they really object to. Definitely, Eric. I think um, what the Kurdish people are attempting to do is um, implement some sort of a you know confederal democratic system in the north. Uh, their main objective has been to argue for a uh, democratization of Syria. Uh, at no point do the Kurdish people in the north, um, the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, is attempting to separate itself and become a separate state, uh, nation state. This concept of the nation state is actually against the very values and ideological foundation and basis of democratic confederalism which is being implemented in the north. Um, so there's no interest on the side of the Kurds to implement um, and to try to separate and become a nation state. In fact, the attempt has been to democratize. Um, and we've seen you know, various institutions and various practices and, and very serious attempts made, being made in the northern part. So I think this element needs to be, um, needs to be very, very strongly highlighted. Um, just for a second, Eric, I just um, literally just now received a message from friends who are in Athens and they mentioned that um, overnight, as a result of the ongoing strikes, uh, 19 people have been killed in Athens. Um, and uh, there are even more a uh, number of people who are currently uh, in, in the hospital at the moment. Um, you know, we're constantly receiving these updates um, about the situation in Athens, which uh, is very, very uh, devastating and very, very upsetting. Um, so again, going back in relation to the Kurdish people, they've been very transparent about uh, you know, sitting down with the Russians, sitting down with the Assad government, sitting down with the Americans and the various groups and organizations internally and externally within the region. Um, their attempt has always been to try to create alliances and to cooperate and coordinate, but always with the objective of retaining um, uh, respect uh, and a push towards the democratization process. Uh, which has obviously generated a lot of discussion internationally, but has also led to a lot of condemnation about uh, what the Kurdish people are attempting to do and their relationship and coordination, possibly, for example, with Russia or with um, uh, with the Assad regime. There's actually been a lot of uh, discussions about also similarly with the Assad regime and uh, coordination between the Kurdish people, for example, or, as you mentioned, with Russia. 
for example, the Russian um, military was positioned in Afrin for for about you know about a year, um, but it, it pulled out. Um, I think uh, just before the 20th uh, January uh, invasion by Turkey was implemented, and I think there needs to be some focus about why you know the Russian government, for example, was uh, has pulled out of Afrin, has pulled out of any sort of support, as well as the relationship between the Kurds and, and the United States, and why the United States is so. Um, definitely uh, silent about what's happening in Afrin and, and Turkish uh, invasion of Afrin. Well, I think it's probably self-evident because the United States uh, sees Turkey as not only a partner in in their broader project in the region and certainly as uh, hopefully from the perspective of Washington, a partner against Moscow. Uh, for Turkey's part, they play both sides. They want to play the Russians against the United States and uh, optimize their deal. The Russians, of course, similarly have their interests. And I think in all of this, of course, the Kurds seemingly are in the middle trying to orient themselves one way or another depending on the month depending on the situation and so I think it's 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 kind of unfair to really uh, uh, you know say that well the Kurds shouldn't have uh, made a deal with the Americans or shouldn't have tried to make a deal with the Russians or so forth the Kurds are going to do what the Kurds think is in their best interest and I think that that's probably what every actor in this uh, very ghastly conflict is doing now I want to I want to shift a little bit and, and just talk about uh, what the Turkish government has done to the Kurdish population inside of Turkey, because I think that is relevant to this broader question of what they're doing in the Kurdish uh, region of Syria. Uh, from from what I understand and from my research, the Kurdish the Kurdish population in Turkey, particularly in the last two years, has essentially been living under a police state t- style regime uh, with with uh, regular attacks by Turkish uh, police forces against the various uh, forms of resistance inside of Turkey. So can you speak a little bit about what Ankara, that is the Turkish government, has been doing to its own Kurdish population and connect that to their incursions into Afrin and to Rojava? Yep, um, the relationship between the Turkish government and ethnic minorities, particularly the Kurds, has always been a very, very violent one and increasingly a very authoritarian one. Um, the Kurdish people have always been denied that they're very basic human rights from not being able to speak their language, not being able to practice their cultural um, and historical traditions. Um, you know, even wearing the colors of the Kurdish, um, of Kurdish clothes is um, subject to prison sentences, torture and executions. Um, you know, Turkey is not the most democratic country in the world. It has one of the highest number of children in, in their prison system. It has the highest number of journalists imprisoned. Um, it is extremely, um, the response towards any form of um, democratic voices or calls for human rights, women's rights, for example, um, always result in violent, um, violent clashes between the government and the, some of these democratic voices um, calling for increased human rights. So I think the international community should be very aware if they aren't aware about you know, the very nature and ideology of the Turkish regime and its relationship internally within the, uh, with different groups and minorities. The Kurdish people and their relationship with the Turkish government is, all, it's, on the other hand, very, very unique. Um, from the very beginning, the very existence of the Kurdish people, which are, are a minority in Turkey, but number about 20 million or so, um, it has always challenged the very foundation, an ideological foundation of the Turkish state and identity. From the very beginning, the Turkish state implemented a one state, one nation, one voice, one language, one flag, one identity policy, 
which you know many of these authoritarian nation states are obviously um, guilty of. Um, but the existence of the Kurdish people and the increasing denial, uh, you know, denial of the existence of the Kurdish people by calling them, for example, mountain Turks and using very derogatory uh, and racist uh, terminology to explain the existence of the Kurdish people in Turkey, led to an increasing attempt by the Kurdish people to become vocal. And of course, this led to the rise of the PKK, um, the Kurdistan um, uh, Workers' Party, uh, which rose up in 1978 and it continues to exist now uh, in Turkey. So I think, you know, the huge amounts of violence that between the Turkish straight towards, you know, the Kurdish people and this complete denial is key and critical to the discussion about the Kurdish-Turkish relationship in Turkey. Uh, the complete denial of any avenues of resolving some of these grievances is at the core root of the existence and the ongoing clashes and conflicts between the Kurdish people and the Turkish regime. Um, back in, um, you know, a couple of years ago, in 2015, 16, and so on, there were attempts at opening some avenues of democratization in the Turkish state. Um, there were attempts by the Kurdish people to start, you know, having schools to teach Kurdish languages, for example. This is after, uh, you know, decades where the Kurdish language was, uh, you know, outlawed by the Turkish uh, constitution and the loss of, you know, you know, the, uh, of, of the Kurdish language. Um, as a cultural element uh, within Turkey. Uh, this has been completely closed down. The Hadapak rose up um, as a pro-Kurdish, uh, you know, pro-minority uh, political party in Turkey. But uh, as a result of the last year, particularly after the 2016 military coup, um, many of these leaders and democratic, democratically elected leaders are in prison serving, you know, about 100, 120, 30, 40 years of prison sentences. Um, so all democratic avenues of resolving the Kurdish issue continues to be denied to the minorities and especially to the Kurdish people, um, with the ongoing consent of the international community, of course. Um, you know, some of these violences, especially with the rise of social media, with the rise of Twitter and Facebook and, you know, smartphones where things can be captured immediately in the moment. Um, you know, the vast human violations in, in Turkey are becoming more and more evident. Uh, and are constantly being released daily on our screens and our phones, um, you know, all the time. So I think, you know, what's happening in Turkey and the ongoing conflict, which has resulted in in, in, in ongoing military uh, conflicts between the Kurdish people, and particularly with the PKK and uh, with the Turkish government, which has resulted in thousands of people being displaced, which has resulted in thousands of villages being flattened and uh, eradicated, resulting in uh, demographic changes again by removing people from villages and forcing them into into large urban areas, encouragement of the eradication of, of the different dialects of Kurdish uh, languages, the targeting of particular minorities within the Kurdish community, such as the Alevi people who have been subjected to pogroms and ongoing massacres consistently. Um, you know, all of this speaks for a very, very complex situation which is historically based in the rise of the imperialist and colonial um, influences within the Middle East, and as well as you know, uh, the rise, the development of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, um, for example. Um, and so, some of these conflicts that we are seeing internally within Turkey, within Syria, within Iraq, are as a result of the formation of artificial states that were formed as a result of imperialism and colonialism, with complete disregard for the ethnic um, and religious um, way in which different groups and minorities were situated. And so some of these conflicts are basically the remnants of, of colonialism and imperialism. And unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see some of these violences play out 
so long as these authoritarian regimes uh, refuse to engage in democratic and in peaceful uh, dialogue with some of these minorities and communities. I think in order to broaden the discussion further uh, to that point about colonialism and neocolonialism, I think that in 2018, no conversation about uh, neocolonial and imperial intentions would be complete without an analysis of media and the way in which media is uh, highlighting one conflict while omitting another, distorting the nature of a conflict for political reasons and so forth. And I think that uh, what we're seeing in Afrin right now versus the coverage that we've seen in a place like East Ghouta is a good example of the way in which the Western media in particular, uh, the corporate media, uh, essentially, I think, replicates a lot of the same neo-colonial uh, strategies, tactics, and biases that we see in the governments of the various countries and in the policy. So let's talk a little bit about these differences. And I don't want to be long-winded about it, so I'm going to kind of throw it over to you. But can you just highlight uh, the way in which the media, uh, particularly in the West, has been covering Afrin versus the coverage that East Ghouta has gotten, why that that difference, that disparity in the coverage exists, and what that tells us about both the the, the Kurds, but also about the way in which the conflict in Syria is covered broadly? Uh, that's a really, really good point, Eric. I think what we've seen is a, a huge uh, amount of international media and attention on East Ghouta at the moment. Let me preface this entire conversation by uh, arguing that it is extremely good that there's so much attention on East Ghouta. It's really, it's absolutely necessary because the human rights violation and the situation that is occurring there at the moment for the past month, the ongoing bombings by the, uh, the regime, and the, uh, and the Russian allies, um, has, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. And there needs to be international focus on this. There needs to be international outcry on East Utah. At least 20,000 people have fled to neighboring Lebanon um, because the bombings have been so severe. Thousands of people have been displaced. Thousands have been injured. Many of them are women and children. The situation is absolutely, absolutely critical. And I think there should be as much attention on what's happening on Utah as possible. The problem arises when there is focus, uh, there's an attempt by using one particular tragedy to erase existence of another tragedy. So what's happening, unfortunately, is this, uh, this uh, focus on East Ghouta is being used to dominate the discussion about what's happening in Syria and really erase uh, and marginalize the discussion about what's happening in, in Afrin. Now, I just want to point out a distinction between what's happening in Afrin and what's happening in East Ghouta. Uh, both situations are very, very critical. Both situations are very, very dire. Thousands have, as I mentioned, been displaced, many more injured, many more killed. But I think one really urgent element that distinguishes what's happening with Afrin with Iswuta is that there is no attempt, um, you know, what, what's happening in Iswuta is, is a war. Uh, and the Assad regime and the Russians, the airstrikes and the rebels uh, resisting, well, the rebels using snipers and arbitrarily killing people, it's a war situation. And unfortunately, civilians are caught in, in between these two groups. But the distinction is in Afrin, there are direct discussions and statements made by the Turkish regime and their forces on the ground in relation to ethnic cleansing and a possible um, genocide being implemented on, on the people of Afrin. Um, so I think this distinction really needs to be emphasized, really needs to be focused on by the international media. But of course, international media are part of this, uh, you know, free market capitalism, this um, industrialized capitalist economy. The, you know, do we even have a, a free media anymore? 
um, the media is very much subjected to the way in which um, supporters, in which funders and donors provide, uh, you know, funding to some of these international organizations, and they're much, very much swayed by the decision, uh, by the, uh, the values and by the issues that the donors uh, and some of these governments are interested in promoting. So I think, you know, the international media is simply a tool of the international imperialist capitalist system. Um, and the fact that there's been complete ignorance of the Kurdish question within Syria is uh, an ongoing element of the denial of the very existence of the Kurdish question in the region itself. Um, the fact that the, the international media is uh, complicit in, in, you know, ignoring vast violations of human rights in Aspen um, while using the tragedy that's being played out in Bhutan for their own particular specific interests, particularly in relation to issues such as, you know, regime change and so on. Um, you know, they're very, very much complicit in, in exacerbating and worsening the current crisis in Syria and the war in Syria. Um, so I think they really need to be condemned. And there needs to be a lot of question in relation to why some of these organizations are promoting a particular type of sort of regime change mentality and dialogue uh, and, and contributing to the worsening of the international of, of the situation in, in Syria. Of course, we also saw this play, being played out again when uh, uh, Aleppo was being um, bombed and was under siege, um, you know, back in 2016. Uh, so the international media is really very much a tool of this international system, this capitalist imperialist system, and they must, should very much be condemned in relation to the one-sided way in which they view violences, in which they analyze, interpret, and release images and information in war-torn communities and situations. You know, going back to a few months ago when the Rohingya was happening, there was very, very little, very little international media attention on, on the, the vast human rights uh, violations that the Rohingya community experienced. Um, so, you know, we should be very wary, I think, as, as the, the left in the kind of media that we consume, we should be very wary about the kind of messages that we consume, and we should always attempt to support um, media outlets and groups and organizations that are attempting to, to retain an, an element of freedom and to attempt to present a more realistic and more unbiased uh, view of some of these international conflicts, um, which is obviously very, very difficult at the moment. Absolutely right. Um, one of the arguments that you hear uh, frequently from uh, pro-Assad elements in this conflict, and I'm and I say that you know without judgment on the issue, only because um, I know people who have a pro-Assad outlook who I respect. I know people who have an anti-Assad outlook who I respect, and I know people who kind of are somewhat agnostic on the issue. What I'm trying to get at, though, is the narratives that have been spun and the way in which the, the international left has entrenched itself on one side or another of this conflict, and I think in some sense missing some of the broader context and some of the broader issues that need to be discussed, particularly the role of the left. But uh, in the context of East Guta, one of the arguments from pro-Assad uh, elements is always that, well, you're, you, you know, you would be claiming that, uh, you know, the Turks are using jihadist forces and, and we should oppose that, and yet when those jihadist forces essentially take hostages in East Guta, uh, we say that it's a humanitarian situation and they should be protected. That kind of oversimplifies the matter, I think, to a large extent. And it really, I think, is is too uh, much of a one-sided perspective. But can you speak a little bit to this issue of jihadi elements uh, in other parts of Syria and the way in which they're uh, embed themselves within these communities and, as you say, make those communities, uh, put them in the center of a crossfire, and whether or not that 
aspect of it, I think, complicates this question? Um, I think it definitely complicates the question because what we've seen from the international media in relation to East Ghouta and some of these jihadist groups and the ongoing war, civil, civil conflict in Syria is that the solutions and the conversation and the dialogues that are being held internationally or at least outside of Syria, it's always a binary. It's either a regime change, you know, Assad is terrible or, you know, one group or the other against the other. So you're either for Assad or you're for the rebels. But really, as you mentioned, or you know, you sort of pointed out, this really doesn't capture the complexity of the situation on the ground. For those who are actively supporting Assad and are anti-imperialist uh, and are advocating that you know Assad should stay in, in, in power, and all of these elements are imperialist elements being supported by outside forces and so on, they ignore the fact that the Assad regime was responsible for vast, vast human rights violations, for massacres against the civilians. They were simply asking for more democratic processes. They were asking for uh, addressing some of the economic situation that was happening at the time. And the fact that the response of the Assad regime was to actually go on, on the street and massacre uh, people who were protesting uh, and to, to torture, to execute, to jail people, thousands of people, uh, and to actively engage in exacerbating and worsening the humanitarian conflict and situation on the ground. So that's one element of the conversation. The other element, as you alluded to, is that some of these terrorist organizations are receiving, you know, support from some of these groups and some of these voices internationally, who think that, you know, these groups, these uh, jihadists, are attempting to bring about democratization. They're opposing Assad regime and the violence of the Assad regime. But really, are either one a genuine solution? Um, both sides have proven to be uh, completely have absolutely no concern for human rights and for the citizens of. of uh, the cities and the areas that they are currently occupying. They've proven no sort of alternative in relation to addressing the genuine concerns and issues uh, that existed within Syria in relation to lack of democratization, authoritarian of the regime. Um, but these jihadists have actually made the situation much, much worse. What is the system that these jihadists uh, are attempting to implement? Let's assume that they remove Assad, which is increasingly unlikely. Um, what kind of system are they going to implement? Are they going to be very much democratic? I highly doubt it. The kind of values and policies that they are, you know, they have been very vocal about is a very Islamic-based, uh, very fundamentalist-based, very radical, um, you know, interpretation of Islam that is going to be to the detriment of human rights and to the detriment of the very multicultural, multi-ethnic um, base of Syria as a state. So I think, you know, there needs to be a much more critical awareness of the complexities of the situation and we need to, to be aware of the fact that you know, an either-or discussion isn't going to resolve the situation, isn't going to address the ongoing conflict, nor provide a viable system that is going to not only fix the problem and start addressing the systematic and structural problems that exist within Syria. Um, I think a lot of these voices are very much, um, have run away with very, very limited, um, you know, narratives that have emerged in, in, in the West. We have groups in the West who are very vocal and very supportive of these rebel groups. But we've known that some of these rebel groups consist of terrorist organizations supported by, again, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and so on, um, who are, who have no, no, no problems in beheading children, rape, you know, all kinds of torture, literally sitting on, on rooftops and snipering people to death and, and women and children to death. So what kind of an alternative do these, do, you know, these rebel groups provide? Of course, there are elements who are democratic and are calling for democratic resolution of some of these problems. But unfortunately, their voices have been drowned out by the jihadists 
and the PROAS articles. I think both are really need to question the foundation of their ideologies and their values, their ethical and moral responsibility to oppressed and violated and, and terrorized and tortured communities, particularly in Syria, because when they advocate for one particular group, they conveniently dismiss uh, the huge amounts of violence that either side has been implementing towards the, the Syrian people and the civilians. I think as the left specifically, I really want to emphasize this is a particular perspective of mine, and if you are welcome to, um, to question me or then to criticize some of this, it should be, always be about the civilians. It should be always about you know the people who are living on the ground, the people who are forced to live with the bombs, the people who are live, forced to live with the snipers shooting at their children, people who are attempting to escape from one element, from one district to another in, in, um, in East Bhutan, only to be bombed and massacred to death, either by the Assad forces or by some of these terrorist groups that are um, functioning in these areas. So our concerns should always be for what the people want. We've seen in East Bhutan, for example, some groups, um, some um, civilians who have escaped to the, to the Assad-dominated uh, areas, or controlled areas, and some have fled to the um, terrorist or some of the rebel-controlled areas. So the situation is very, very critical. What we should do as outsiders, for example, what we should do as international left is refrain from pro pro you know, producing or supporting particular values of these binary narratives that are emerging that present support for one group to the detriment and safety of the other group. Um, the focus should always be on the oppressed. The focus should always be on what do the Syrian people want. And at this stage, I think, you know, having lived here, there is very, very little attempt to actually understand what people in central and southern parts where the regime, the, the jihadists are currently in direct conflict with each other, what do they want? We've had some voices that have come out, um, but they've been very, very clearly biased against one side or the other. So it's very questionable um, how they're being motivated and why they're being motivated to present a particular perspective. Um, but really, what are the people, what are the Syrian people saying? What do they want? What kind of solution do they want? Do they want to support some of these rebel groups or jihadists? Is this what they want? Or do they want to return to the Assad regime? What kind of a regime do they want under Assad control? Do they want the previous pre-war uh, Assad regime um, and the policies and values that this regime held? Or do they still want Assad to be in power, but some attempt towards democratization or incremental changes towards liberalization um, of the authoritarian practices and policies of the regime? So I think, you know, the voices of the Syrian people are completely lost and erased in these binary views that are being emerged. And of course, another binary view is that, you know, it's the rest of Syria and Assad and their, and their rebels um, dominate the discussion as if the Kurdish North and the vast amounts of democratizations and, and the vast amounts of gender liberation policies and the democratic and inclusive institutions that are being implemented there do not exist, as if they are not part of Syria, as if they don't present an alternative, which may or not may not be accepted, that's fine. But you know, an alternative does exist. So why don't we bring all of these tools and elements together in a way where there's you know genuine discussion and attempt to resolve some of these problems. But of course, going back to, again, the previous discussions that we had with the United States, with Russia, with Iran and so on, it's extremely difficult to bring about genuine dialogue and to resolve this issue because of the imperialist and proxy wars and conflicts and strategic and geostrategic interests of some of these players that are playing out in Syria. Unfortunately, again, to the detriment of the lives of the people of Syria, the women and the children. So much more to say about that. I, I, I couldn't agree more with so much of what you said, but since we're running out of time, I just want to ask one final question, and you kind of introduced it for me there in your previous comments, but um, 
we know what the international left has uh, has has done, or rather, what's happened within the international left uh, in the context of Syria. We've seen a lot of divides, a lot of different positions taken, people shifting one side or another, and so forth. But what, I don't know that the, all that really necessarily has a direct impact, at least to to a large extent, on the situation on the ground. And since you're there and you have the benefit of the uh, you know, firsthand experience of living there, of understanding the situation in a in a first person sense of the word. Um, I want to ask you, what if anything can people on the left in the West particularly do uh, to help bring about positive change uh, in either the Kurdish areas or in Syria generally? And I don't simply mean, you know, organize a discussion group or put together a protest. I think that we do have a lot of that going on already. But is there anything from, from your perspective that we can do that would materially benefit the Kurds of Afrin or the Kurds of Rojava broadly or the people of Syria generally speaking, this is one of the things that I think is so difficult about a conflict like the war in Syria is people feel very helpless. We feel like observers. We feel like we can try to follow it and understand what's going on, but that we're powerless to do anything. So I guess I'm, what I'm really asking you is, is there anything that we can do? I think there's a lot that the international left can do and should have been doing in relation to Syria and the, the war that has been going on for seven years now. I think from the perspective of a Kurd sitting here, um, one of our major concerns and something that genuinely causes a lot of tension and, and worry and concern from us in relation to the international left is the lack of information about the Kurdish issue and the historical issues and conflicts and relationships uh, that have colored and impacted what's happening at the moment and what is being currently playing out in Afrin. Um, you know, a lot of the discussion is about, for example, the statement of the Kurds are uh, you know, really Iranian migrants that came from Iran and are not indigenous to the region and, and so on. And I think this is really, really problematic because, you know, when the international left accepts some of these incorrect statements and assumptions, it really challenges some of the solutions that could possibly emerge because the international media, as we mentioned, you know, presents a lot of these discussions and the international left accepts a lot of these discussions. So I think really analyzing and understanding the historical context in relation to Syria, in relation to the uh, what's been really happening since the 20th century, since the rise of these, you know, artificial uh, and colonially penned uh, states, and some of the vast human rights uh, violations that have been implemented towards minorities. I mean, you know, the, the genocide of the Armenian people um, in, you know, 1915 is one issue with which the entire region is still very much debating about whether to accept or not to accept, but it's a reality of, on, on the ground. And I think, you know, when we start to understand the way in which the regional historical context, context have impacted um, some of these policies and some of these relationships that are being played out at the moment, I think it will make a huge, huge difference. But often when I personally read a lot of um, analysis about the situation in relation to the Kurds especially, I'm often very, very angered uh, and I feel very upset because it's as if, you know, these contexts and these situations and these wars arrived in a vacuum. As if there is no historical context, as if there are no historical, um, you know, prejudices or grievances or conflicts that have colored the way in which different ethnic and religious groups interact with one another. The denial of the existence of the, and, and, and you know, the history of the oppression and the legitimate grievances of some of these minorities in the region is personally for me something that is consistently comes up in the way that discussions are held 
uh, about minorities, about groups, about what's happening with the Kurdish people, about Afrin, uh, and about Syria in general. I think, you know, the international left really needs to focus on, again, uh, return to the base. And what is the base? It's the fact that we believe that we can bring about change, systematic change um, internationally, you know, because some of these systems, some of these organizations and institutions are incredibly unfair. Whether it's, you know, nation states that are dictatorial, implementing capitalist, colonial, heteropatriarchal uh, values and policies. Um, so I think the international left needs to really see who it is supporting. One element that I've seen from the international left is strict uh, and dogmatic adherence to ideology to the detriment of human rights. You know, it's wonderful to be anti-imperialist, for example, but if your anti-imperialism is denying the existence and the massacres and the genocides of people on countries that you probably until, you know, a couple of months ago couldn't even pinpoint on a map, and, you know, it, it's going to be very, very problematic. I think it's really wonderful that there's so much interest in what's happening in Syria, but a lot of it is based on misinformation. A lot of it is based on the prejudices. A lot of it is based on a lot of sexist and racist values that we are picking up and adopting from the, some of the official channels and voices that are emerging with international media, or whether there are some voices that are coming out, some activists that are coming out. For me, if I have a message as a person, as a woman, as a feminist, as a Kurdish person, um, you know, my my message to the world would be it should always be about human rights. It should always be about listening to the oppressed and the colonized and the silenced. If your policies and if your values on the left is supporting continuing practices of oppression, colonization and silence of already marginalized groups, then you really need to question your own ideology, your own ethical and moral basis in some of the elements of the left as ideologies on the left that you advocate and support. For me, I am questioning, always questioning voices that do not immediately provide urgent support for human rights and urgent support for the people who are currently being massacred and killed and uh, you know subjected to snipers on the rooftops, people who are being thrown off rooftops, people who are, have access no, to no water and to no food, to the children that are dying, to the women who have been subjected to extreme forms of violence, particularly sexualized violence. So I think, you know, the international left has a lot of responsibility towards what's happening in Syria. Has it been as ethical and, you know, as it could have been? I don't think so. So the international left really needs to question itself about what it could do to better support people and the voices in Syria and really start challenging some of the biased views that are coming out of Syria and start contributing to a more democratic, to more inclusive, to more, uh, you know, gender aware, to, to um, a more, uh, you know, a voice that promotes multiculturalism and the resolution of some of the basic problems that resulted in the rise of the civil war in Syria and obviously the ongoing massacres and conflicts and, and you know, uh, huge amounts of human rights violations that are currently being played out at the moment in Syria, in East Ghouta and in Africa. Thank you for that. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, Hojin Aziz. Uh, she's the creator of the Middle Eastern Feminist page on Facebook. I highly recommend you follow it. Uh, very good work there. Uh, Co-founder of the Heavy Foundation, uh, formerly a member of the Kobani Reconstruction Board in Rojava, PhD in political science and international relations. Uh, Hojin Aziz, thank you so much for the work that you've been doing and for giving me your time and for having a pretty solid internet connection. This was great. Thanks so much thank you so much eric for having me it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so so much for, for you know hearing me out and giving me a voice 
thank you again and thank you listeners for for tuning in and uh talk to you again next time and next time it'll be the 100th episode so hopefully i'll have something uh something nice planned for that anyway thanks again speak to you soon